Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Christian Finley is a thoracic surgeon at McMaster University. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Finley about his unique training pathway and his provocative work demonstrating the disparities in surgical cancer care across Canada. Dr. Finley, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel today. Uh, we really, really do appreciate your time. Um, you're a really interesting guy to certainly a lot of us, and uh, you've had an interesting path. I was curious if you could tell our listeners where you grew up, what your training pathway was like maybe even why thoracic surgery as a fellowship and a career? And then how did you end up at, at uh, McMaster and Hamilton in particular? Sure, yeah, I'll tell you my whole arc. Although I think the word interesting is cover for weird, um, but I, I like it. I like the way you post it. Um, I am a thoracic surgeon. I'm actually a third-generation thoracic surgeon. Um, my maternal grandfather was a thoracic surgeon. My dad is a thoracic surgeon, and I am a thoracic surgeon. Um, the I was born in London, Ontario, and, and come from a medical family. My my granddad, who was a thoracic surgeon, had eight children, um, and he and four of them became doctors. Uh, two of them became surgeons. He wow. would take all of it. He bought a cottage, and he would take all eight children the day after um, school up to this cottage and leave them there um, for the entire summer, and bring them back the day before school started again, and leave them with a non-swimming Mennonite nanny. Um, so it's a wonder I am even around. <laughs> the, um, uh, and so out of this medical family, my, my mom um, married my dad, who, who was a, a medical student in London at the time, and then became a, a thoracic surgeon. Um, and so my roots are, are deep into London. Um, when I was about 13 years old, my dad got the job as the head of surgery in Vancouver, and so we moved out west. Um, which was um, both traumatic, you know, for a 13-year-old to move across the country, but also eye-opening and, and opened a bunch of doors to the outdoors and to the BC, which which I loved, um, and really developed a lifelong passion for the outdoors. Um, I did um, engineering at Queens uh, after I'd done high school in, in BC, um, which was wonderful, which is still, I would say, the best four years I ever had. Um, and then I got into medical school back out west and went back out west. Um, and had um, and loved it. You know, I, I think I absolutely loved medical school, and I absolutely loved the general surgery residency I did at UBC. Um, I've never been so tired in my entire life. You know, I think we started with five residents, and I think we finished with three. And and just as people left the program, we just got to do more call. Um, it was back in the era when you would do call all night and work the whole next day, and and I loved it. I, I got 12 cavities, I think, through that time because I, I ate nothing but gummy bears and Swedish berries from the vending machine. Um, <laughs> yes. But I worked, I worked so hard and loved it. I absolutely adored it. And, and, and to this day, uh, think back on that training as, 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 as such a wondrous time. And, and part of the, the greatness of BC at the time was you got to, um, one, rotate to rural communities. And so I went to Whitehorse. I went to Prince George. Um, I went to Bella Coola when I was a medical student, and, and I really developed a, a, um, 
a love of those rural places. And, and at a time in my life, I thought I would be a rural surgeon. Um, and the other great thing was that they had a, a six-year residency of which uh, one year was a research year, and you could really do whatever you wanted. And so I went to Harvard and did an MPH at Harvard. Um, um, and, and had a wonderful time there. And I think that that's where I met my wife, which I think probably adds to how much I loved it. But um, it was the type of place where everybody was interesting. You know, all your classmates um, did phenomenal things. Um, I keep in touch with them to this day, and we still do hiking trips every year. And every time we're sort of walking along these trails, you hear what people are doing, and it blows you away. And Al Gore would come and talk, and all these sort of high-level people that would really get you thinking beyond, you know, what was right at your feet. Um, I also took um, some leadership courses at the Harvard Business School and some um, other courses at the Kennedy School of Government, which I think really opened me my eyes to how things are done in business and how things are done in government and how it differs from medicine and public health in particular, which which is very telling in today's environment. Um, you know, after that, I went and did my thoracic training at Toronto. I, I interviewed to actually at the Mass General and a bunch of different places across the United States. Um, and, and eventually chose Toronto. I remember vividly going to Boston, largely because I'd been to Boston for that MPH and thinking it would be nice to go back there and talking with one of the fellows there um, at 4.30 in the morning when I was rounding with him. And I asked him what he thought about Boston. And he said he actually had never seen Boston. He'd only seen within 50 meters of the hospital. Um, and so that was telling as to what the training was like. Um, and so I, I settled in Toronto um, to do my my fellowship, and again, worked very hard, but but really, really enjoyed my training there. And it was a sort of place that was on an, an upward curve, which I think is um, a good place to be. Um, they were in a, a growth. You know, I ended up doing lung transplants with them and flying all over the country and participating in all these innovations. You know, the first ex vivo, the first um, awake person who was on pulmonary, pulmonary venous bypass pumped only by their right heart. Um, so there's this 13-year-old girl awake with pulmonary hypertension whose uh, pressures were high enough to pump it through a circuit, um, um, awake with this oxygenator externally, wow. just sitting there. Um, and just so to see a 13-year-old like with that, to do all these transplants, to run and, and go stuff, to put people on the first, ex, you know, to take these lungs on and do this first ex vivo was really amazing. It, again, it was a bit telling that my wife was an emergency physician and has worked in Calioth and um, the South Pole and has had a far more interesting life than I um, came and was working in the emergency department at the Toronto General and so on the day we did the first ex vivo lung transplant I came home to tell her how we'd taken these lungs and they were by themselves on the OR table on a pump and we were resuscitating these lungs by themselves and it probably cost about $100,000 uh, she had been downstairs in the emergency department and someone came in with a broken leg and they couldn't even find a pair of crutches for the person to go home um, and so that was the telling nature of our health wow. system, how you can spend $100,000 on a pair of lungs and can't find a pair of crutches. As part of the training, they allowed us to do electives, and, and you know we're all trained in a very tight circle in thoracic surgery in Canada. And so I thought it'd be important to go away and see how it was done differently in other places. And using some connections from, from uh, mentors, I went over to Leuven, Belgium, which had one of the premier um, thoracic units in Europe. Um, and did some time with them and, and absolutely loved it. Um, again, um, just a great time to see a completely different way of doing the same thing. And they were great technicians and I learned a lot. I also learned, learned a lot about humility 
I think a lot of the European surgeons have a, have a, a much more humble way of doing things. And you would have these absolutely world-class surgeons um, doing sort of what we would not consider typically within the scope of a thoracic surgeon. And then also, if they're having trouble with a pump on a transplant, they would call cardiac surgeons because the cardiac surgeons were doing it every day. And, and, they, and their, their um, ego didn't get in the way of patient care, which I really um, valued there. I then went over to England and did some training in, in minimally invasive esophagectomies, which was novel at the time. And here was a relatively sort of medium-sized hospital um, doing sort of cutting-edge surgery. Um, they would still use cloth drapes on the patients. Um, it was very British. Um, and at the same time, they would be doing this cutting-edge surgery. We'd be doing laser, laser dopplers of the flow of our conduit before we put it back in and do all sorts of really sort of novel, innovative stuff. Um, but then you'd go to the cafeteria and they'd have roast beef and Yorkshire puddings for lunch at the cafeteria. So a very British experience. But I came back with that, those skill sets back to Canada um, and uh, at the time was trying to look to where to work. You know, um, And um, there's only a few jobs available at the time. And one of them was here in McMaster. And at the time, McMaster was undergoing some significant difficulties. And they were essentially changed the whole staff out for thoracic surgery. And so I came down here with Yaron Chargal, who is my partner, um, and joined one of the surgeons who was here for about six months until he was gone. And then it was the two of us. But simultaneously, they'd, they'd undertaken regionalization in Ontario. And so they closed down St. Catharines, Burlington, and a few other places. And all of a sudden, um, we were the busiest center for elective cancer surgery in Ontario, all in the first year of my practice. And it was two of us. And so they had these criteria for what, what meant a large volume center. And I made the, the criteria for a large volume center myself in my first year of practice. Um, and I've never worked so hard or been so tired in my life. You know, I would go to bed at night thinking about all the procedures that I would be doing because, you know, someone once told me when you just start practice that it's a great time because you've never had a complication and you've never had someone die. Um, and sadly in thoracic surgery, those things don't last very long. Um, and, and it's it's a real contact sport, sort of like, um, you know, pancreatic surgery or other sorts of significant surgery where the morbidity rate, if you're being truthful about it, is probably in the 40 to 50% range. Um, and so I, you know, always had 15 patients in the hospital. I operated, you know, three days a week. There's one week I did seven esophagectomies and one week myself. Um, and I was exhausted, but I worked, you know, from 5.30 in the morning, I was here and I'd be here till eight o'clock at night every night. And so for those first few years until we hired some more people, it was, um, real hard work, but it was good, um, uh, testing ground to get good, real good at your, your craft. Because I, I do believe in that 10,000 hours, I, there's a real learning curve after you become a <laughs> staff becoming even better. I, in my experience, both from myself and my junior partners, and there's nothing like being thrown in the deep end to get through those those experiences. So I'd say I agree with you that my my career clinically was 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 not typical, um, but has been very rewarding. And I think it's amazing sometimes that um, I, I think our training in Canada is wonderful, and in particular because we work with a bunch of different people. I, I still pull out moves that I learned in Prince George or in Whitehorse from mm -hmm. very different. Rounds and and they've you know they've pulled me out of the pulled me out of the fire and and and, and the same thing about you know I got called into a retro cable retrohepatic cable injury 
Um, and I was pulling out some moves from general surgery, you know, grabbing it with some Alice's and trying to suture it um, with these backhanded stitches. Um, and that was all moves I learned in, in, in different places. And I think that's sort of the advantage of, of training in Canada is that we get that, that broad training and, 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 and good training. Like I think I can't, can't think of a place in Canada that I don't um, really respect because I've seen great surgeons come out of, you know, all the centers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. Your, your pathway has so many elements that, that are so critical. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just serendipitous and we're lucky and we fall into these and sometimes it's planned for sure. But, you know, your volume outcome, your volume comfort, um, your volume performance obviously is one element, but the other element too, as you pointed out, is is traveling to other places. You know, when I think of me uh, as well, you know, my experiences that were prolonged in places like South Africa and Colombia and Indiana and Atlanta. I mean, you, you're exactly right. You're we're all a compilation of what we learn, and it's. I I almost feel bad sometimes for our friends or our trainees or whoever who just sort of stay in one place through all their training pathway. Because um, they're they're missing out so much. Yeah, and it's and if you're not there working, I, I I found that that being there, showing up, putting my all in, I got experiences that were wonderful. Um, and you, you worry for people that don't that aren't there as many hours. Like I I I, I, I don't want to jump into that the deep end that is work hours because I I do think that mm-hmm. that it was too much in some ways, and there were great personal and health probably costs to it. But but by being there, I saw and did things that made me the surgeon I am today and and without them I don't know what I would would have learned in some ways so I, I you're right we're all these compilations of what we learn and some of it is, is just by dumb luck um, and just being around. Dr. Finley you're the lead physician for CPAC which is Canadian Partnership Against Cancer uh, can you tell us about uh, CPAC what it is how it was formed and kind of what are its goals and, and mandates and and then you know CPAC has been ha- having some uh, really significant impacts and some real achievements uh, over the last few years. And can you tell us tell us what you think have been the big um, achievements of CPAC uh, up, up till now? So I'm not sure if I'd call myself the head physician. I think there'd be a few people that would contest that one. But I, I do I do um, um, lead in this uh, cancer surgery realm for sure. Um, but my, my path to CPAC, I think, equally was serendipitous. You know, I think it's it's uh, equal parts showing up and trying hard and equal parts dumb luck. Um, you know, certainly in all those busy years, um, I went into it having had a good basis for research. And I went into it um, through my residency, um, often developing my own research questions. Um, I'm not sure, Chad, again, what your experience has been, but certainly coming from Vancouver, there wasn't always huge research projects to jump onto. And oftentimes you would sometimes be handed a bunch of charts to review that weren't necessarily, uh, the research question hadn't been really thought through. And Mm -hmm. so I started crafting my own research questions very early on and then trying to find ways to make it happen. And so, you know, even in Vancouver, I learned how to query the National Trauma Registry. Um, I learned how to get through a graduate student access program, get access to Kaihai data for free. Um, and then I, I used that data in my time at Harvard to ask my own questions and write my own papers, such that, you know, all of my my work on volume outcomes was really stuff that I generated and found ways to get data for and then found 
um, statistics people to work with, and, and it was a lot of hustle. Um, and but but because I came up with the question, I liked the question, and I was impassioned by the question. And my dad would always say that you know there's a hundred hours that goes into a paper, and you better like it because spending a hundred hours doing something you're not enjoying is is a tough slog. And so from those questions, I was looking around and I saw that CPAC had put forth a review for proposal um, to look at at how um, cancer surgery um, was going in Canada, like high-risk resource-intense cancer surgery. And so I put in an application um, and I was careful about reading what they wanted. And I, I made sure I made collaborations with people that were outside my typical comfort zone. I made co um, contacts with geographers to plot out um, how things were done. And I learned to do that because I'd watched Morad Hamid do it in, in BC trauma, that, that the power of good uh, geography can help tell a story. And so I made that contact to Simon Fraser. I learned um, the power of getting a voice from the patients. And so I found in, at McMaster, Julia Abelson had this very amazing group looking at asking citizen panels what they wanted from healthcare. And so they would inform them and then you'd get feedback from a, a patient group. And so adding on top of the quantitative aspect of that I think that we're good at doing in surgery or, or uh, binding ourselves with epidemiologists and quantitative numbers, I tried to add in things that were atypical. And I found that in my career by looking to the, the interfaces in that Venn diagram or looking to where two different types of science meet, you get to ask interesting questions and, and people are, um, are really willing to collaborate. And so I put forth this review for, to proposal and I won it against people that, that by all rights had more um, right to that money than I did. But I, I read the question and I tried to think of it in a uh, interesting way. And my, and my experience in asking my own questions to that point had, had allowed me to ask interesting questions there. And, and I guess it resonated with the people handing out the money. And so with that money, um, I found a very smart student, um, Saad, who came to work with me. And um, and I really I recognized that he was intelligent and I gave him the support he needed and he ran with it. Um, and so by finding a good person and trusting them to do the work, we were able to pull that thing off, which I, which I don't think... Um, again, a more established group would have given those opportunities. And I think that it has allowed him to flourish and allowed the project to flourish. And, and through that, those collaborations, we were able to come back with a document that has affected real change. And so we were able to, sh to show quanti quantitatively what the problems were in the country um, to the point where there's, there were some regions and jurisdictions with quadruple the mortality of others or double the length of stay. But I also, because I was a surgeon, was able to identify that if all we did was beat, beat on outcomes, that, that the best way to have good outcomes is not operate on anybody who's high risk. And I think that we all know that surgery for many of these diseases is the only way you're ever going to be cured. And so that if you rob people of their chance of cure by, by perseverating on only mortality and length of stay in those outcomes, you've missed your chance to help people. Um, and I think that's why when I came out with that report, I really tried to balance that access to care with the outcomes. Um, and I do think that when, and, and I came forward with a number of different key findings, but I also came forward with a num number of different recommendations, which were to benchmark, to, to set standards, to be respectful of geography. You know, what works in downtown Toronto does not work in Newfoundland. Um, and, and 
my job at CPAC has really been, I, I, I wrote that report and then they hired me to really implement the recommendations. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years is really looking at standard setting, benchmarking, um, and trying to understand how things are different in uh, you know, rural Nova Scotia versus, you know, um, Quebec. And, and I find, I think that that job at CPAC has really been a lot of relationship building that in, in the Canadian system, we don't have authority at the federal level to change things, that everything is done at a provincial level in terms of, of making stuff happen. And so when you want to affect change, you can't tell anybody to do anything that you have to learn to work with everybody and help them to accomplish their goals, to understand where they might be lagging, where they can, you can provide them some structure, some support. Um, you know, I think a lot of times Ontario does some, some wonderful things, but in reality, um, there's places like Manitoba, which has the best breast cancer program I can find. Their, their um, re-excision rates are low. They've got the highest immediate reconstruction rate. And so that's a, a something that's scalable and transferable to a lot of provinces that might find digesting an Ontario approach impossible. Um, and so that using BC or Alberta or Manitoba or whatever is good in one place and and creating these networks where you can disseminate those best practices has been what I've been trying to do. And, and when you've only got soft power, you, you learn how to work with people really well. Um, and... And part of it is, is I think, trying to understand where you can get data, because data, I think, in this day and age is what we all need. And trying to get it in a contemporary manner um, has, has been the tension, right? It's always um, trying to find information for people that can help them do a better job. But if you show up with something that's five years out of date, the first thing you get is, well, everything's changed. We're, we're much better now. But it's been my experience. You, you then get that data that's updated, and you realize that things haven't changed. But, but you keep going through the circle with people if you don't have, you know, contemporary data. And so um, those tensions of being contemporary, topical, and practical using what you can get your hands on have been um, themes I've been using and trying to cross-pollinate between sides. I just want to take a step back, Dr. Finley, for, for our listeners who don't know the work that CPAC has done as well. Can you tell us a little bit about oh, what sorry. was what was involved in in and really answering this monumental question uh, and, and really doing this monumental task that, that you were working on. Um, so, so can you tell us a little bit about what, what was sort of in that initial report and, and what you found uh, about cancer surgery uh, in Canada? Sure, yeah, I should answer your first question, which was CPAC is a federally funded organization um, that's mandate is to reduce the number of people getting cancer uh, for those that do get cancer, try to make sure that the mortality is going down, and that for those that have had cancer, that improving their lives. Like I think that um, what we found is variation. You know, I think that it's not surprising to everyone that there's there's a lot of differences, despite the fact that we're in Canada and we have what you would expect to be. Um, the most homogeneous of systems, that we have very good comprehensive training that's pretty similar, that we have relatively similar resources, especially as it comes to cancer surgery. But in fact, you know, the number of people who get access to even the decision to have a cancer surgery um, varies dramatically. 
um, and that the flow of patients is in, is very complex. But the end result is that um, if if surgeons aren't involved early on in the decision for operability and resectability, that you get a whole group of people that that don't even get a chance to be cured. Um, so to give a specific example, when I came to to Hamilton, there was a group nearby that was part of the regionalization that um, didn't fully understand the implications of what a PET scan did, and so would not do biopsies to confirm PET positive nodal disease, which for, for those non-thoracic surgeons really means there's a false positive rate to the PET scans and those people weren't getting um, optimally evaluated so that you lose 25% of people that actually were curable. Um, but you see that everywhere, that, that when CPAC did work looking at single fraction radiation, which is for palliation, so if someone's got a painful bony met, you don't need to bring them 10 times to the hospital and radiate it. You just give them one blast of radiation that's equally effective. But when they started looking at it, there was a couple of provinces where it's actually that piece of contemporary information was had not made it into clinical practice. And so the fact that we looked at it changed things. Or day surgery for breast surgery. The, the chance of getting a day surgery for a mastectomy varies from 0% in one province to 35% in another province. You know, there are many factors like that in terms of access to care or mortality that we found just varied across the country. And um, I've worked in a lot of places um, that are not the ivory tower and, and I love them. They're my, they were, um, I have the, the utmost respect, you know, so when it came time to interpret these results, I went to each province before I publicly released them to work with them because I think none of us like to be sideswiped. You know, no, nobody likes to have their data thrown in their face, in particular if you've not had the ability to vet it. And so before I released any of this information publicly, I went and talked with every provincial leadership. Um, and even and in fact, even when I was going through the process, one of the avenues that I didn't speak to earlier was. I, w I had a structured questionnaire and would try to find out who was in charge of cancer surgery in the province. And the, really the questions I had for them were, um, can you get data about what's happening in your province? And can you use that data to affect change? It's really the most simple of an audit and feedback loop. And then most of the time I'd say, are you in charge of cancer surgery in your province? And 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 then about 25% I get an answer, I think so, which is never what you want to hear from somebody. Um, and, and almost nobody had the ability to get data and act on it. And, and so one of the fundamental recommendations was that every province has to have somebody in charge that has a budget to get data and then able to affect change. Because cancer surgery often sits out of the silo of the cancer agencies, that, that we have a system where cancer, you know, in our, our historic context was medical and radiation oncology that sits in a standalone building away and and that some surgeons had cross appointments or had some um, experience there but but largely there was significant barriers to MDTs or to, to working with them that we were trying to to overcome and so again one of the recommendations in the report was that that you have to have someone in charge and they have to be able to do something um, even in the most basic sense and we've really I think seen significant changes in, in, in the last five years in that, that I can think that almost every province now has a person in charge who can get data and is acting upon it. So I think that 
at the most fundamental, that's what I'm most proud of in terms of the body of work is that is I think that we're moving forward in that the surgeons are, are being integrated into the cancer agencies better and that we're able to get data and work with it because we are always going to have some variation, but we need to try to minimize it. And that's that was what led to the work in standards is that, you know, I think we all know that the volume outcome relationship is really about everything except the volume, that it is having good people who work together with um, nurses who know what they're doing and having the right equipment and and. I always liked that Amir Gaffrey paper in the New England Journal that mm-hmm. um, at um, that the complication rate between a high mortality and a low mortality hospital is exactly the same. It's really how you rescue someone once they've had a problem. And I think that's what everything else is about. There's no doubt, Christian. I mean, it, it, it's incredible how much work and how much traction and how much structure you've created in you know less than five years. It's uh, you know it's 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 quite awe-inspiring, quite honestly, and it's something that'll, I hope, change the, the country and cancer care forever. It's interesting that you bring up um, not only failure to rescue, but sort of dance around a little bit. I mean that in the nicest way. The, the different methodologies that various provinces have implemented in terms of trying to unify quality of care and implementation of care and outcomes of care. So if you look just as an example, of course, for you look at Cancer Care Ontario, and as you alluded to earlier, you know, creating strict volume threshold, case volume thresholds, you're in or you're out, you're, you're going or you're done, versus, say, Alberta in the, in the rectal cancer world, which was more of an educational sort of endeavor as opposed to um, a tough love endeavor. How, how do you view those different processes um, um, at the government level? And how do you view it in terms of the interpretation and the abilities of CPAC? It's it's such a multi-layered question, isn't it? Because I I, I vacillate um, back and forth because ideally what you would have is a situation where somebody looked at the province and made sure that people didn't have to drive too far to get good care. And then that's actually one of the things we did in our report is map one and three hour driving radiuses from cancer surgical centers and try to plot that out. But, you know, ideally you would measure how Christian Finley as a surgeon did and, and be able to, in real time, evaluate my results against, in risk-adjusted way against my peers. Um, and in thoracic surgery, we've actually largely done that. We have, you know, another body of work that I've done with Andrew Seeley, uh, who's a surgeon in Ottawa, is look to start a national database in, in thoracic surgery where we capture all of the complications, all the minor and major complications. Everybody does it with a strict definitions and that it, it, it's what drives our M&Ms. And so our M&Ms are no longer, um, what can I remember my problems being two months ago? Um, it's driven by hard numbers saying our atrial fibrillation rate is up. It is higher than um, it is in Ottawa. What practices can we bring in place to, to improve that? You know, I think that's the ideal model where I as an individual and us as a center and us as a country for that matter, compare ourselves to peers and try to make sure that, that we do it in a positive deviant method. And so that, that's again what Andrew Seeley has, has really advocated for and I think is, is a good Canadian way of doing it is it's not about punishing those that are, that are you know, two standard deviations below it is saying, you know, you, you are two standard deviations below. Here's what the people who are two standard deviations above are doing. 
how can we do that? The other aspect of that um, is I think having making sure that everybody has the basics of what they need to do a good job, and that was the standards. So I wanted in, in my my ideal world, and and then to some extent we've been successful. We've benchmarked either at a uh, administrative database where that's necessary, or at a very uh, micro level or nano level at the individual center. But I also think that we constructed these standards to um, make sure that everybody had what they need. They, they were constructed in the most positive of ways. And so we tried to make sure that we had good geographic and practice setting representation. So we had, you know, for breast cancer, we brought Alex Poole from Whitehorse. Um, we tried to make sure that we had people from downtown Toronto and um, Grand Prairie or ha have good representation by geography practice setting so that we had the right people at the table. And then we tried to say, what do you need to do a good job? What, what, is, this, what is a standard that needs to be there? Um, and a lot of the time, um, we would break it down by who the people are, where they're working, and then what quality processes need to be wrapped around them. Because I agree with you, I don't think setting a number of 150 is useful. I, I think that if you had 149, it doesn't make any different than 151. So we, we, we took the evidence of the literature to be that you needed to have standards and have the things in place. So we actually had a librarian go, um, Laura Banfield, who, who really helped us go and get all the published and great literature. And we educated our, our representative group of surgeons. And then we sat down and we constructed what the people had to have, what they had to have wrapped around them. And then on a go forward basis, what type of data they had to capture and the quality processes. Because I think all three of those elements um, are key. Um, and I think we tried to pick the disease sites where we saw the most heter uh, heterogeneity in the country or variability um, and pick off thoracic surgery, gynae oncology, rectal cancer. And then we tried to pick off big disease sites like breast cancer. Um, because, you know, as, as good as we are and, as, uh, and, and I sit on this international clinical benchmarking where we compare ourselves internationally, Canada does very well at many things, but there are certainly some things that we lag on, and, and knowing how you lag is important internationally, nationally, and, and locally. And I do think that those standards are fundamental. I, to your original question, you know, I think it's a combination of the Ontario and Alberta and, and BC, for that matter, models is that that we need to capture data and, and act upon it, in particular if it's, if it's struggling. Um, but that a positive um, framework where you're trying to pull people up and mentor them and, and keep things managed locally that can be managed locally is, is key, um, but that you do need to be watching um, in some capacity. And you can do that in a responsible manner by having communities of practice where everybody has the opportunity to comment on what they think it needs to be captured um, and then get their data in a protected in a protective and safe environment. And you saw that with urologists and margin positivity and T2 prostate cancers. And so for, mm -hmm. for all of them, memorize the pathologic staging of prostate cancer, um, it's really, if, if the cancer is in the prostate and you're removing the prostate, you shouldn't have a positive margin. Um, but they had a positive margin like 40% of the time. Um, and, and talking to some urologists, it should be more like 10% of the time that there's some aspects of how the pathologist cut it, and some uh, of the nerve-sparing nature of it that, that you are going to have some positive, but but they identified the problem, they got the data, they acted on it, and they dropped their numbers dramatically. So 
I think that you can have a combination of, of many of the methods and that you have to use your local circumstance. That that when I talked to Newfoundland about the standards we de- developed for thoracic surgery, um, they sat back and I said, you know, we got eight cases of, of esophageal cancer. If we sent them all to Nova Scotia, there are, are, are lots of times in the wintertime that we cannot get people out. Um, and what are we going to do with the perforated esophagus if we don't have any esophageal skills? And so I think there's some practical to it that that we're able to to get into the document that really as as reflected um, in pragmatism but um, I think that all of the all of us um, have different methods Ontario is a very um, micro method but but I think that they're all good we just need to have someone in charge dr. Finley one of the the things I think that you tried to really drill down on in, in your guidelines was the whole question around surgeon uh, performance. Because I think one of the, the things that's hard to quantify and yet we all know intuitively is so important is that quality surgical training and quality surgery is really uh, what underlies a lot of what we want in terms of good outcomes. I mean, we you know, we all talk about hospital volume and that we need a good team, but fundamentally, uh, under underlying all of this is um, the performance of the surgeon, and for example, you talk about in the guidelines um, what that that someone doing rectal cancer surgery should have uh, a specialized training in it, or that um, they should have sufficient volumes of it. Like, what what are your thoughts about that? Like, does this mean that everybody should have done a colorectal fellowship uh, or a surgical oncology fellowship to be able to do rectal cancer? Um, or, you know, like you say, there are practical considerations in a, in a country like ours uh, that's so geographically spread um, that maybe that's not realistic. And then the second part of that question that is, should there be some way of monitoring our performance as surgeons? So, you know, should we be having coaches in the operating room or, or in intermittent video assessment uh, of our uh, cancer surgery, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you, you ask these these very tough questions, so hopefully you edit me and make me sound brilliant. But um, uh, the training one's an interesting one, right? So that is the most contentious issue when you bring it to a group of people. Um, and I think that there are things like when we had that conversation at the breast table, the feeling very much was that everything needs to be done that can be done close to home that breast surgery um largely can be done close to home but there are aspects of it that that if you don't do a lot of it that you can um that you cannot um be aware of and i think sometimes in in surgery or in medicine in general the most dangerous things are the things you don't even know you don't know um you know i always think that about junior residents on call they don't even know that they're walking into a dangerous situation because they haven't even, they're not even aware of it. And I think that as surgeons, we can walk into, um, to danger, not knowing it. And, and, and there are ways to get around that. Certainly when you come out of your training, you're, you're, the, you are the closest to, um, contemporary training you're going to be and that we all have maintenance of certification. And if you try to stay on top of, everything in the world, um, it's not possible that, that, you know, my wife is an eMERGE doc and trying to stay on top of what's new in, in stroke 
heart attack, appendicitis, and everything else in between is, is, is an almost Herculean task. And in surgery, in particular in general surgery, I think that there is, we've, we've crossed the Rubicon, as it were, that things are getting really complicated, and even in things that we used to think of as not that complicated. And so um, there's a balance of, of getting enough training, so being ultra-specialized in something, and doing enough of it to stay contemporary. Um, and I think if you commit to something that you don't necessarily have to have three fellowships in it to be good at it. You know, I think that we can all think of rectal surgeons we worked with who were really, really good. And, and they came from an era when there wasn't fellowships and they just did a lot of it. You know, nowadays I think that we do have to do fellowships be just because um, the world is not as forgiving on that learning curve. Um, and so I think that if you want to do a, a specialized thing like Whipple's or, you know, low lower third rectal cancers or transanal excisions, you should really have training at it and be staying up to date. And I think that that is trying to quantify how much time a year you have to spend being committed to something to be competent at it is difficult to know. But I do think that there, the reason that we structured our standards that way is that I do think that there are, are levels of training or uh, commitment to the proportion of your practice or, or case volume that is necessary to be good at a job. But I also think that you need to, on a go-forward basis, know how you're doing and compare it to something. There, there, is, there is always a, an international collaborative or benchmarking undertaking in every disease site. And, and relying on things like NISQIP, which, which looks at wound infection rates, really doesn't tell you about your margin positivity for low rectal cancer excisions or, or um, margin positivity of, of a Whipple. And so you need to do disease site-specific monitoring to know if you're if you're on the fairway. And, and, and you certainly see that, and I saw that in my data, is that when, when you work in a really niche area and you live in a, in a, a small province, you don't even know if you're, if you're two standard deviations below until someone shows up and tells you. That, that was the, the, the case when I showed up with the data for my report. And it's like, you guys are two standard deviations off of the mark. And they would have no idea because no one was keeping track of it. So I do think that there is a component of training and a component of ongoing maintenance of certification slash knowing how you're doing that is is important. So I think that there needs to be an assessment and there needs to be a level of training. You know, how authoritative you have to be and, oh, you have to do three extra years of this. You know, I think that the Royal College is quite good at, you know, things like gynae oncology, defining, you know, what it means to be a gynae oncologist. Um, but I don't necessarily think that you have to do the Canadian training. And in many cases, I think that there's very good training around the world. So I, we tried to, into our standards, put into a methodology that people's training should be comparable and go through the Royal College assessment as necessary. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, in all disease sites, you just have to sit there and look at what you're doing and make sure it's, it was exciting to do every, all, all disease sites in all areas. And I remember doing that in Prince George. You know, you do an esophagectomy, then um, a transanal excision, and then you do a thyroid, and it was awesome. But I, I think that those days are waning. Um, you know, th there certainly are areas where, where people are still able to do that. But I think as it goes forward, it's increasingly less the case. 
it's it's interesting, Christian. You know, you <clears throat> that you touched on Nisquip in particular. Um, Henry Pitt and some others within the HPB world have developed HPB specific Nisquip with a lot of those more nuanced HPB relevant uh, outcomes and markers that quality indicators that we would be interested in. Outside of potentially bringing in, you know, uh, a very public, a very expensive uh, QI platform like Nisquip, how else can the community general surgeon or or even us at the Foothills Hospital or or you at Mac? How do we how do we accumulate that data? How do we access it um, if we want to act on it as a as a collective uh, outside of CPAC? Yeah, you're right. Like all the administrative databases, or even NISQIP in general, not the disease site-specific NISQIP variables, are useful imp- information. But I would think that at its most basic, we need to have healthy M&M rounds and have partners. And if you do, and if you don't have partners who do what you do, you need to make a partnership with someone somewhere else that does what you do. Because you know we all need to phone a friend now and again, um, and that we all can do better. Um, you know, we had an M&M two years ago, maybe where we were looking at our lymph nodes. You know, we looked at data that's at hand. So the pathologist in, in Ontario at least captures synoptic pathology. And you can go a long way on synoptic pathology because you can look at how many lymph nodes you take, your margin yeah. positive, which are really the, the two fundamental aspects of most surgeries. Um, and so you can get within your institution under the protection of quality improvement data that is takes a little bit of work and you can get. But I think that you need to have a functional group of people that can talk you need to get some data on a regular um, cycle um, and compare it to something. And, and there are, are cheap and easy ways of doing that, you know, like looking at your wound infection rate. Those are usually captured by somebody in the hospital, um, even on the discharge abstract database. And usually your hospital can get that data for you. The pathology is, again, a low-hanging fruit where you can find out what your nodes look like, find out what your margin positivity rate are. So... But I think at the baseline, we just need to have functional M&Ms. Um, you know, I participated as a trainee in a lot of M&Ms that, that, that didn't adhere, I think, to the spirit of it, which is to be not cancelled every other one, to come in with actual data to talk about and with a, um, an openness to, to discuss results. Um, and I think that we as surgeons sometimes... Um, struggle with those aspects of it and, and that um, but I do, I do think that we need to come into that process um, with an era of humility um, and trying to improve because I you know we've seen one of the stories that I keep meaning to write down is we've seen a reduction in mortality in, in cancer surgery in Canada of 35 percent in the last decade show me another disease site that's reduced their mortality by 35 percent you know we've done an amazing job um, mm-hmm. and uh, largely, I think, driven by the fact it's a team sport. We have better intensive care. We have better anesthesia. We have better, you know, minimally invasive techniques. And all of these things have resulted in a massive improvement for our patients. And yet, you know, no one's crowing from the rooftops about that. So clearly we're doing a lot of stuff right. But I, I do think that we need to keep um, those fundamental processes intact. And I think that the busier you get clinically, um, the the harder it is to do, but by, by laying those out in advance, I think you can still protect them. You know, I think this coronavirus has been been devastating to a, to a lot of surgeons, but it, what it has done is allow a little bit of free time to 
sometimes go and look at things you weren't looking at before. And one of them may be how we deal with referrals and dealing with them as a group um, or how we um, evaluate ourselves that are things that we can spend some of this time doing that are productive. Dr. Finley, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. And I think it's been a really important conversation and some really uh, challenging but, but, but important topics. One of the questions we've been asking all of our guests um, is if, if you were to go back and give yourself some advice uh, as a trainee, maybe during general surgery residency or, or even during your fellowship, what would that uh, advice have been? I think number one is to stop eating out of the vending machines. I think that was probably the <laughs> um, Number two, um, I think you need to find good trainers, like to, to, to ask around and really do your due diligence to find out a place you want to train. And then I would go all in. Um, I think that by committing yourself to the undertaking of surgery com- with your heart, you can come out of it with a wonderful career. You know, I, I, I love my job. Um, and I think part of that is because I really took all the opportunities that came my way and may have created a few for myself, but most of it was just working hard and enjoying it. Um, and I, I think that that's what, what makes it a great job. Like, you know, surgery, when you ask surgeons about their quality of life, even into later in the years of practice, they love it. Um, you know, when I think of myself and my CPAC job, you know, I still am a, I'm a surgeon four days a week and I've looked at other opportunities and I sit back and I go, I love being a surgeon. I, I, you know, it's the best job ever. Um, and so I think by being a surgeon and getting that good training and sort of um, savoring the, the experience of it is wonderful. It, it's, it's, you know, I'm a third generation thoracic surgeon. When I read my grandfather's operative reports from 1945, you know, I can I can sense his his joy, his you know terror in doing you know that first pneumonectomy. You know, you can read through his operative report and go and try to think back to doing a, a pneumonectomy when no one knew how to do a pneumonectomy, and we all you know to doing an MIS coli when no one's done an MIS coli or you haven't done one before. It's a great job with lots of challenges and rewards and and sorrow, but it's um, you know my recommendation would be enjoy it because it it, it is fleeting. You know, it's sort of you know you think back. Um, even talking with you guys today, how fast that all went down. You know, I'd feel like I just started the other day, but you know, it's it's been a few years. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.